0: Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Francis of Assisi. St. Thomas Aquinas. Holy Guardian Angels. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, great. Well, welcome back. And um, again, on these Saturday mornings... All we're doing is taking a nice slow walk through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, it's not even a brisk walk, it's a slow walk. We covered a hundred points last time. We're going to cover about the same this time, which means in 28 meetings or so, we should get through everything, which is roughly 28 months. So that's good, a good two, two two and a half years. I hope no one's planning on going anywhere. Um, and we're we're just gonna slowly make our way through the catechism, because the goal is to encounter the actual text of the catechism, to to become very familiar with this book uh and the gift that it is to the life of the church, and to slowly learn the truths of our faith. And again, when we're reading the catechism, the goal is not to to get it done like you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read the catechism to get it done. Right? That's like I have friends who say, we're going to, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year, but it's just to get it done. Right? It's not to actually learn anything. It's just not to pray with it. Heavens no. It's just to get it done. Uh, that's definitely not what we're doing. So we're just taking our nice leisurely walk again. There's plenty of coffee. There's more coffee if anyone wants it. And so we are on point number 101. Uh, We are still in the part one, uh, kind of introductory part. Section one of part one, chapter whatever we're on. Uh, We're on sacred scripture. Page 35. Page 35, if you're using the little hard copy, right? So with the catechism, they all have, all the paragraphs have numbers. So we're usually going to go by the number of the paragraph. That way, if you're using a different. A hard copy, a big version, a little or a paperback. Uh we're all in the same place. So number a hundred one, those listening at home as well can follow along whatever version, of the catechism or even online. In order to reveal himself to men in condescension of his goodness, God speaks to them in human words. This is uh scripture is the word of God in the language of human beings in the language of men. And so this is what we have in sacred scripture. Like when God reveals himself, there's a principle in just uh quid quid recipitor, recipitor in modum or secundum modum recipientis. Whatever is received is received in the mode of the recipient. Uh, if you are sick, food is going to you it's the same time as Aquinas is the, the, the sick person's tongue, right? It's like, it's, uh, this doesn't taste good. Because the food isn't good? No, no, no. It's because I'm sick. Because I, you know, um, this room, I can't smell anything. Why? Because I'm congested. I'm not. I don't have any of these. We're going through a health scare right now. Don't you worry. I actually just went to the doctor yesterday and I am a specimen of perfect health. If, you, if you've ever considered like this right here, I'm a specimen of perfect health. Um, all good, all inspired, this, this is, <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, it's central, so that's, oh, man. Okay, anyway, so whatever is received is received according to the mode of the recipient, meaning it's you receive according to your own. If you're sick, you, you know take in stuff like that. If, you, if you're colorblind, it's not that there's not the color in the things, it's that your eyes aren't able to pick that up. Uh, and so when God reveals himself to us, He reveals himself according to the mode that we can receive. Again, I know I use the example in most things. I can do this whole thing in Italian if I had an Italian catechism, but you don't speak Italian. So we got to communicate in the way that the person to whom we're communicating can receive. And that is in words. We receive through primarily words, the spoken word and the written word. Number 102, through all the words of sacred scripture, God speaks only one single word, his one utterance, in whom he expresses himself completely. And that is our Lord. God God speaks. Christ is the word. Uh, God is revealing himself uh, through all of scripture. And it's that one single, notice, capital W, word that the Father speaks the Word. The Son is the Word of the Father. For this reason, the Church has always venerated the Scriptures as she venerates the Lord's own body. She never ceases to present to the faithful the bread of life taken from the one table of God's Word and Christ's body. You know, even our Holy Father, Pope Francis, recently instituting the Sunday of the Word of God because we venerate the Word of God Uh, as God's own revelation, and God reveals himself to us, and Christ is uh, the word. 104, in sacred scripture, the church constantly finds her nourishment and her strength, for she welcomes it, not as a human word, but as it really is the word of God. That's a citation from 1 Thessalonians. In the sacred books, the Father, who is in heaven, comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. Like, so we, when we read scripture, it's not just like any other book, right? Like this is God's revelation of himself to us. And so whenever we read sacred scripture, like this is, this is God's revelation. Uh, this is God revealing himself. Now there's all kinds of things we can get into, particularly about translations and whatever. But like the heart of it, scripture is God's revelation of himself to us. And so it's not just any other book. It's to be venerated. And again, Scripture is to be um, proclaimed within the church. I I think I said on the Sunday, the Word of God in my homily, that we should consider the words of sacred Scripture like notes on a page of music, right? They exist there, uh, but the notes, like when we see those notes, the music is not, oh, these are the notes on the page. The music is when we give voice to them. And so the word of God proclaimed in the liturgical assembly is the words on the page that give voice to God's revelation of himself to us. Now, number 105. When you ask who the author of scripture is, who is the author of scripture? God, right? Who wrote the gospel of Matthew? God. Like God wrote Matthew's gospel. Who wrote Mark's gospel? God. Who wrote Luke's gospel? God and John, it's a whole thing. God himself is the author of Scripture. But God composed Scripture um, using, uh, this is 106, God inspired human authors of sacred Scripture to compose the sacred books. God chose certain men who, all the while he employed them in his task, made full use of their own faculties and powers, so that though he acted in them and by them, it was as true authors that they consigned to writing whatever he wanted written and no more. And so who's the, who's the primary author of all of scripture? Almighty God. But is St. Matthew a real author of Matthew's gospel? Yes. Like Matthew is working under divine inspiration. And so God is the primary author in his providence and by his grace directing what's written. But Matthew in full freedom wrote, and he used all of his... In fact, it's cool. Like, let's take Matthew's gospel, for example. Matthew is the only uh, evangelist to use the word talent for the huge sum of money. Because Matthew, as a tax collector, would have probably been the only one who knew, like, a talent is... how What is it? It's like 500 days wages or 2,000 days wages? That's a big difference. Whatever, a talent is a huge amount of money. Right? It's like, it's an incredible amount of money. And Matthew would have been the only one who would have known um, that sum of money to use that vocabulary. So when our Lord says a huge sum of money, Matthew in writing the gospel is actually kind of infleshing what our Lord says by saying talent, five talents, two talents, one talent. So Matthew is using his human knowledge um, same like St. Mark writing in Rome, even though they're writing in Greek, I should have brought my Greek Bible today. Um, St. Mark writing in Gre- in Rome, in Greek, writes out certain words that are, um, that are Roman words, like the word legion, right? He just writes it in Greek. He just writes... Legion, which is the Roman word, legion, but he writes it in Greek. Like, so Mark, writing in Rome, is using also denarius. Denarius is also, it's a Roman word. It means one day's wage, but that's, that's Greek up there. It's all Greek to me, um, but that is Mark as he's writing is using Greek uh, Roman words just writing them out in the Greek language Um, which is again him using full making full use of his knowledge and knowing the people to whom he's writing his gospel Um, but God is the author kind of inspiring all of this Father Casey yes you're the four evangelists yeah they didn't know one another they They did did, they did know each other yep they write in different time frames, different time periods. Who ultimately, in the end, compiled these things, compiled everything, put everything together to actually give us a Bible? Yes, that is We're, a we are getting there. Um, in the canon of scripture, number 120, Dottie, you're jumping ahead. 20 points. Um, no, but it is, um, it is ultimately the four evangelists. Um, they would have known each other or at least known of each other. Uh, like if Matthew did Matthew ever meet Luke cuz Luke was traveling with Paul same with you know John so it's it's a question of um uh, well we'll get into when we get into the four gospels we'll, we'll definitely get into My grandson it. Asked, yeah asked me that question because he's studying um, he's calling it a bible history class yeah. a religious history class but it's not really it's not a, like a religious version that we would be hearing right. it's more of a historical region. uh and and, that's, and he was asking me, and I'm thinking, all these years, I said, I don't know how put it together. Yeah, well, we will get to that. Basically, God did that. Yeah, no, it's, it's through the church, but we will, um, yeah, we'll be there in about 10 points um, or so. Um, but yeah, so, um, but the Christian, because here's the important, here's where we get that page, number 108, number 108. Still, the Christian faith is not a religion of the book. Christianity is a religion of the word of God, a word which is not written, not a written and mute word, but the word which is incarnate and living. That comes from St. Bernard. If the scriptures are not to remain a dead letter, Christ, the eternal word of the living God must, through the Holy Spirit, open our minds to understand the scriptures, that Scripture is always to be read uh, in the church. It's the book of the church. And the, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate interpreter of Scripture. That's the title of the next little section there. In sacred Scripture, God speaks to man in a human way. To interpret Scripture correctly, the reader must be attentive to what the human authors truly wanted to affirm and what God wanted to reveal to us by their words. In order to discover the sacred author's intention, the reader must take into account the conditions of their time, culture, literary genres, and use, modes of feeling, speaking, narrating the current. For the fact is that truth is differently presented and expressed in various types of historical writing in prophetical and poetic texts and other forms of literary expression. So there is a reality that we need to pay attention to the genre of the genre. It's not everything's not written in the same genre to get, apart, to get across the same message, right? Like the Psalms are poetry. You can't go read the Psalms the way that you would just straight up read one of the gospel narratives. Even Matthew, Mark, and Luke are trying to present the story of Jesus in a different way than St. John is. So you can't read, that's why we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels. We're gonna to get to that in a second. But they're presenting the story, the same story but we're looking at it from a different angle. It's the same one truth. Like we can't get into like, there are multiple truths in scripture and whatever you get out of it is what it means. Like, no, that's baloney. Something happened, um, but they're all kind of presenting it in different forms, talking about it in different ways and focusing on particular points of what happened. You could read the Gospel of Mark in a good hour. If you devote a good hour you could just read the Gospel of Mark. It took three years for those events to happen. So don't think in like the one hour, you've got the total picture of everything Jesus said and did, right? You, you can read it in an hour, and it took Jesus two and a half to three years to do it. And so when we're reading these things, they're telling different sides of the same one story of the man who became God and in the Old Testament, of God's selection of the people of Israel, and his slowly forming them and leading them. Um, We're just going to skip down to number... um, Well, we're just going to read quickly. The Vatican Council indicates three criteria for interpreting Scripture in accordance with the Spirit who inspired it. Number one, be especially attentive to the content and unity of the whole of Scripture. This is called a canonical exegesis, where we are paying attention like... You don't read Luke's gospel as if it's something apart from Mark's gospel or Matthew's gospel. You don't read the Old Testament as if it's something separate from the New Testament. You don't read the New Testament as if it wasn't formed in the whole tradition of the Old Testament. So we have to be especially attentive to the content and unity of All of scripture, right? St. Paul writes one letter to the Thessalonians and another one to the Romans. You don't read them like they're written by two completely different people to be just taken in isolation. It's the one Paul working with very particular individual communities. Number two, read the scriptures within the living tradition of the whole church. That scripture and tradition are um, the two kind of sources of revelation, the two Um, ways that God's revelation comes to us. There's nothing in Scripture that's not in the tradition, and there's nothing in the tradition that can't find some root in Scripture. And so we always read, like, I'm not going to pick up my Bible today and be like, oh, here's some new thing about, you know, again, Mark's Gospel. Like, the church has been reading Mark's Gospel for 2,000 years. Like, we got to read it as it was read by the people that St. Mark wrote it to. And then the people that they handed it on to, and they handed it. So we always read scripture within the unity of the entire tradition of how the church has received this. And three, be attentive to the analogy of faith. By analogy of faith, we mean the coherence of the truths of faith among themselves within the whole plan of revelation. That it's the whole faith that's professed. We've got to be attentive to how does this fit with the... um, with the faith that we believe, and how does all of Scripture tie into this one faith in the person of Jesus Christ? Now, uh, when we talk about the senses of Scripture, number 115, this is kind of cool. Uh, According to the ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture. There's the literal sense of Scripture and the spiritual sense of Scripture, which is subdivided into the allegorical, moral, and anagogical. So the literal sense, like what where Jesus literally walked from here to here and he said these things or something similar to it. And that's like the literal sense of, of what happened the, the historical understanding or in like the Psalms, like what are they actually saying? So like the song of songs or the song of Solomon, uh, as many people, as it's also called is like, it's a love poem um, uh, it's about two lovers, and it's very beautiful. But there, so that's the literal sense, like, right? This is about two people in love. Um, but then there's a spiritual sense of this is about God and the human soul. This is my relationship with Almighty God, that God loves me in this way. And I ought to love God in this way. So there's the, the literal, but there's also the spiritual sense. In the spiritual sense, we have, we have three different breakdowns of the spiritual sense. The allegorical sense, we acquire more profound understanding of the events by recognizing their significance. So for example, like the Red Sea, crossing through the Red Sea, the Israelites walk through the Red Sea. We read this every year at the Easter Vigil where we focus on baptism because we pass through the waters out of slavery into the journey toward the promised land through the waters not of the Red Sea, but of baptism. And so when we read the Old Testament in knowing the fullness of Revelation in the New Testament and the life of the church, we see in that like, oh, yeah, like that is a, a foreshadowing of baptism. Same with the flood, which washed away all the sin. Like, well, our sins were washed away in the waters of baptism, right? So there, are a way, the manna in the desert being a prefigurement of the Eucharist, that God is directly feeding his people. The way that he would feed us, not with, you know, little grains of bread or whatever it was, manna uh, coming down, uh, but he feeds us with his own body and blood. So the allegorical sense we see as we're reading scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, you can see a lot of these allegories that point to things that are full of, in the life of the church. The moral sense is that scripture teaches us what to do, right? Like we should learn in a real way how to act by our Lord telling us how to act, but also um, when we see how the apostles act and like the Acts of the Apostles. Okay, like I can learn some of what to do in Scripture. I could also learn what not to do, right? Moral doesn't just mean do everything you see in the Bible, right? Sometimes it's like don't do that, right? David doesn't go out on campaign, so he's abandoning his duties. He's taking the day off from work um, or the season off from work. And then he takes a nap, and then he gets up and walks on the rooftop and sees Bathsheba over on the other roof. It's like, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't abandon our duties and take naps in the middle of the day. (laughs) That Moral sense. Don't do that. And then when he sins, he tries to cover it up. So maybe when we do something wrong, we should right away admit our guilt and not just try to cover it up and make it worse. Okay, moral sense. And then the anagogical sense, we can review the realities and events in terms of their eternal significance, leading us toward our true homeland. Thus, the church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem. Right? So the anagogical sense is that all of this is fulfilled one day in the new heaven and the new earth. And so when we read Scripture every time we hear about, like, the church and the... or um, Israel and the city of David at Jerusalem in the Psalms, we can pray those same Psalms in the anagogical sense, praying for the new Jerusalem, which is ultimately going to be the kingdom of heaven um, in all of its glory uh, when our Lord comes again. And so we really can pray with these different senses of Scripture. Okay. We are making great progress. Um, Perfect. The canon of scripture, Dottie, here we go. It was by the apostolic tradition that the church discerned which writings are to be included in the list of the sacred books. So scripture is the book of the church, right? And we have manuscripts and papyri. We have collections, codices, codices they're called, of like the compiled works of scripture. Uh, So the catechism right here in number 120 goes through all the books that should be in your Bible. If you have a Bible that doesn't have these, you got a problem, right? Um, Sometimes they have different names, so you got to be sure to pay attention there. But these are the books, 46 books of the Old Testament, 27 of the New. The canon of scripture is set by the church, uh, that the church has the authority to determine. uh, And there's actually, there's a school of theology. It was the Spanish, the Jesuits in Spain in the time like right in the 1950s that talked about it was the apostles who had the authority to to reveal you know they were transmitters of god's revelation right so the apostles matthew um mark was writing on behalf of saint peter but he himself is an evangelist in his own right luke is writing uh on behalf of saint paul but again he himself is an evangelist in his own right and then saint john the apostle they had the authority to like write the script, like they, they wrote scripture um, from scratch, uh, from what they saw from our Lord and what they gathered from others in the community. But like they wrote down the inspired word of God. They were inspired directly. But also there's a school of theology that says that the apostles also had the ability to say, this was inspired. This was not, right? So like we know that St. Paul wrote letters that are not in the Bible. They're not inspired. Um, they were the inspired letters of Paul are what are in the scriptures. So if someone, it comes up because there's always archaeological stuff that's going to prove us all wrong, right? If someone's like, oh, we found the third letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, like we know he wrote other letters to the Corinthians. He says he wrote other letters to the Corinthians. We're not foolish saying that we've lost a book of the Bible, This is what was inspired, and the apostles had the authority to say, This was inspired. This was so, like, um, Bartholomew could have been a guy who said, Oh, yeah, you have this letter from Paul that's inspired. Like, you know, by God's grace, they would be able to tell and discern which works were actually inspired or not. That's a school of thought. Another school is that the church, in her authority, particularly the church in Rome and the successor of St. Peter had the ability to, um, they, this is inspired, that it's the authoritative teaching on the church. Because like where in the Bible does it get, this is the problem with sola scriptura. If the Bible is your only thing, like this is a lot of Protestant denominations, it's just the Bible, the Bible alone. We don't need a church. Well, who decides what's in the Bible? <laughs> like who decided what's in the Bible? The Bible doesn't have a list. Like, our Bibles all have tables of contents. That wasn't in the early Bibles. So who decides what's in the Bible? Um, And so the church is the living authority, which the Bible is the book of the church. And the church gets to say, this is the Bible. These are the written inspired scriptures. Now, what you need to know is inspiration ended or revelation ended, rather. Revelation ended with the death of the last apostle, right? What that means is I can't write something or or take, no, forget about me. Like you can't include the diary of St. Faustina in the Bible, right? Like that's private revelation, but that's not revelation with a capital R that you have to hold to as dogmatic truth, right? That's a good private revelation of our Lord to St. Faustina. And it's a good message and we should all read it. But it's not the Bible, right? The Revelation ended, capital R, God's revealing his one word to us in the person of Jesus Christ ended with the death of the last apostle, which we believe to be St. John. And so once John dies, like, boom, no more books in the Bible. That's it. Um... And so we, that's what we hold, that the Bible is the book of the church now. And they even tried. So today is the memorial of St. Perpetua, Saints Perpetua and Felicity. And early on, like, because again, the Bible are the writings that we read in the liturgy as well, right? So they're like trying to read the acts of the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity were like immensely popular in the early church. And they're like, oh, these must be inspired. Like, right. We should be, certain communities are like, let's read this at mass because this is inspired. And the church, and particularly the church in Rome, had to be like, no, you're not allowed to do that. Or even probably the closest one we have, the letter of St. Clement of Rome, Um, Clement writing to the Corinthians. Clement is, remember, if you want to know the early popes, it's Peter and then it's Linus um, Cletus, Linus Cletus, Clement Sixtus, right? So Clement is right there. Uh, He's the third successor of St. Peter. So he, we actually believe he was writing in the late 90s. So we're still within the first hundred years. His letter uh, to the Corinthians, like St. Paul to the Corinthians, Clement to the Corinthians, not in the Bible. It's not supposed, it's a good writing that shows the life of the church, but it's not inspired scripture. The church has the authority to determine what's in the Bible to determine the canonicity of Scripture. Now, you get into a little bit of trouble with regard to the Jewish Scriptures because the church even has authority. The church is the new Israel. We have authority. It's the one revelation of God. Christ is the ultimate interpreter of the Jewish Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures. So, like, but there's a book I have, The Catholic Introduction to the Old Testament, which goes through a lot of, like, how do you determine what books are in the Old Testament? The New Testament is pretty clear. We're pretty okay with the New Testament, How do you determine what's in the Old Testament and different Jewish communities? You can't just say, well, what do the Jewish communities read? Actually, Jewish communities are reading different things. They don't agree on all the time what should be included. So um, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, testament just means covenant, right? So it's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and it's all this one promise of Almighty God. I recommend you always go back and read number 120 and all the books of what should be in Scripture. But there is something called... um, Let's talk for a minute about the Deuterocanonical because these are fun. There are a few books that aren't in a lot of Protestant Bibles um, because they were written. They're called Deuterocanonical. So canonical, it's the canon of Scripture, the list of the books that should be in Scripture. But these are the... um, They're the Deutero. They're the ones that are like, yeah, everyone agrees these are not the same weight, almost. They're the same weight, the same revealed scripture. But they're a little less secure. Uh, And you'll find them not in a lot of Protestant Bibles. Does anyone have a Protestant Bible here? No? Cool. Well, yeah, so I'm going to give you a little mnemonic device so you can know what they are. It's why should Judith buy a taco and two mushrooms, okay? Remember that. Why should Judith buy a taco and two mushrooms? Wisdom. Sirach. Judith. Stays the same. Baruch. I was about to try buy. <laughs> Baruch. Tobit. And Maccabees. One and two Maccabees. These are called the Deuterocanonical. They were written in Greek. They weren't written in Hebrew, um, and so this is a big thing. If you say, "Well, the Hebrew Scriptures are written in Hebrew," these aren't written in Hebrew. Uh, I think there's also parts of the Book of Esther and Daniel are the other ones that were only available in Greek, right? Certain sections of them. So those are the ones that you'll find if you, like, pick up a Bible at Barnes & Noble. Most Protestant Bibles don't have this in there. And so, like, look for the Book of Wisdom or Ecclesiastes. Or Maccabees is the very easy one to look for because that doesn't have a different name. If your Bible doesn't have Maccabees, it's not a Catholic Bible, right? Uh, The church sets the canon of Scripture. Uh, But those, the reason why they're special is because they were written only in Greek. Right, So they're included in the what's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, that's uh, sometimes... I'm sorry, we're getting very intense here. You'll see the Septuagint referred to sometimes as the LXX, which just means 70. That's, um, there were 70 rabbis who worked for 70 days to... Translate the scriptures from Hebrew into Greek and legendarily came up with the exact same translation. So it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures is what you need to know. Those books are included in the Septuagint, but they're not included um, in a lot of Protestant Bibles. Um, Okay. Canon of Scripture. Yeah. And then um, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Again, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. I think this is good that we're spending a little bit more time going through what's in the Bible and what's in Scripture. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. um, Synoptic with one eye. They're basically all telling the same parable, the same stories, and maybe the ordering is a little bit different, but they're basically telling the exact same thing. And now we believe... Okay, I've just resolved that we're going to just be focusing on the Bible today. It's worth, it's worth knowing. So congratulations, we're not getting up to number 200. We're going to end up getting up to like number 133. Um, but it's good to spend a little extra time talking about the Bible, I think, because it's so essential to nourish us in our faith. And um, if we want to be able to, as we go through the catechism, continue to reference the Bible, we should know what we're talking about, right? So as I said, um, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John – um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke called the Synoptic Gospels. Now, it's actually believed by a lot of people that uh, Matthew, that Mark wrote his Gospel first, although we have testimony from Eusebius of Caesarea, who's an early church historian, that Matthew wrote his Gospel first in Hebrew, and then translated it himself into Greek, right? So, so important to know, the whole New Testament is written in Greek. If you want to, like, What is the official language of the New Testament? It's Greek. If you want to argue about, like, what does a word say? Well, what does it say in Greek first? Because don't, like, our translation, this Revised Standard Version, Second Catholic Edition translation is a good translation. It's actually, though, a translation of the Vulgate, not of the Greek. And uh, so this is a translation, it was Greek into Latin and the Latin into English, right? So you're already two steps removed. Whereas the Jerusalem Bible was a translation from Greek into French. Now, unfortunately, then what they did is they translated it from French into English. So that doesn't help us too much either. Um, But the Greek is the official language of scripture, right? Um, The Greek is what the apostles wrote. So that was what was inspired, right? In Arche, Hain, Hologos is the beginning of John's gospel. In Arche, in the beginning, Hain was Hologos, the word. Uh, and But the the inspired text is not, in the beginning was the word, rather it's in Arche, Hay, and uh, That is, it's the Greek that was actually inspired. Okay, so uh, Matthew, though, is believed to maybe have written a gospel in Hebrew and then translated it himself into Greek. Um, Mark is, and Matthew, okay, so we believe Matthew is the tax collector, right? Matthew is the apostle the tax collector, and like I said, Matthew uses uh, certain monetary terms that probably he would have been the only one to have been in contact with that amount of money, like talent, talenta in Greek, and as well, uh, Matthew's gospel is really divided, if you want to look at how we divide Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel is divided by the five big discourses of Jesus, right? So Jesus, five different times in Matthew's gospel, what's the biggest one that we all know? Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew's Gospel is the one that has the Sermon on the Mount, and it's chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. And each of these discourses of our Lord end with when Jesus finished all these sayings, right? Um, And when Jesus finished these sayings, or, you know, after his discourse then to the apostles, it's when Jesus finished instructing, then it's after the parables, it's when Jesus finished all these parables, um, so and when Jesus finished these parables, right? So each one has a, there's a common repetition because when you read the original Greek manuscript, didn't have chapters, didn't have verses, didn't have these little cool title things. Um, it didn't have bold, italics, and in a lot of cases, even punctuation. So there had to be ways to distinguish like a break. And so that's where we have certain repetitions that are um, present. And so that is in Matthew's Gospels, when Jesus finished, boom, right? So you have an infancy narrative, a passion story, and then the middle part is divided by these five great kind of sermons or discourses of our Lord or instructions or parables. Um, That's Matthew's Gospel. Mark's gospel is uh, by far the, the shortest, and it's the easiest to read. Mark um, is believed to have been Peter's um, scribe, right? So Peter probably would have been illiterate. Peter himself probably would not have been able to, to read or write. He is, in the Acts of the Apostles, referred to as an illiterate man. Um, Mark would have been his scribe. And so Mark would have, as Peter is saying things, Mark is writing them down for him. And Mark, though, is not really good at Greek, but Greek is kind of like what English is today, where if you want something to be understood internationally, it's the lingua franca, because it used to be French. It's like, if you want something to be understood internationally, today, English is the language that you use for that. In this time, it was Greek. Everyone, Greek was like the second language of everyone. And so Mark is writing the gospel in Greek, but he's not that good at Greek. And so his word's usually pretty small. It's kind of abrupt. And so when you read it in um, in English even, it's like, and then Jesus went here. And then he did this. And then immediately this happened. But Jesus said this. And then this. And then he left the synagogue and he went into Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. Jesus lifted her up. The fever left. She waited on them, right? It's not like a nice discourse. He's just boom, boom, boom. Uh, His Greek is very simple and easy to read, uh, more or less. So you have, um, and it's believed, though, that he's writing in Rome and that he's writing what St. Peter told him, that it's, uh, there's actually a new translation about a year ago that came out of Mark's gospel with some meditative points on it uh, called uh, The Memoirs of St. Peter. And that's because it really, Mark's gospel is most likely The Memoirs of St. Peter, and so that's what Mark is writing down. Luke, um, Luke claims that he is not an eyewitness to these things, but that he talked to the eyewitnesses. And Luke is um, also the author of the Acts of the Apostles. We're going to get into something cool with this in a few minutes. But Luke is the author of the Acts of the Apostles as well. And so he is Paul's traveling companion. So what we believe about Luke's gospel is that Luke is writing down what Paul was preaching as Paul was preaching the gospel, right? And now Luke is a physician, and he even, um, the other two evangelists refer to the woman who had the flow of blood. Luke says hemorrhages. Um, uh, There's other specific things. Luke is the only one that talks about Jesus sweating blood at the agony in the garden, which is a medical condition for people undergoing extreme stress, uh, the sweating of blood. And so Luke is the only one who talks about that. Uh, Luke also is the only one who includes the Annunciation. So it's also believed that Luke would have spoken to Our Lady. And that, like, who else would know what happened between Mary and the angel? And so Luke, uh, interviewing Our Lady, he has many of the details there. Uh, So Luke was very diligent. But he even says, at the beginning of his Gospel, he's writing it to Theophilus. Now, interesting Interesting thing about the word Theophilus, we think that that's a name, right? Oh, excellent, Theophilus. Theophilus means, in Greek, the friend or the brother of God, right? It's just the friend of God. So it's very possible that Theophilus is not an actual person, but he's writing this to a friend of God, right? And you and I, we're, we're friends of Almighty God. Um, and so he's writing this to Theophilus. Inasmuch as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us and who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things which have been informed. Right? So Luke says, he's talking to all these people and he's just trying to put it down in an ordered way. Now, We're going to jump ahead a little bit, skip John's gospel for right now, and go to the Acts of the Apostles. So after Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, it's a big hit, he writes a sequel called the Acts of the Apostles. And so he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen to them, he presented himself alive by the passion. So now he just goes on and tells what the apostles did, uh, and particularly Paul. And now there's a few different sections where Luke um, accidentally makes a few mistakes. And he says, we, right? We set sail for Troas, right? So now it's like Luke's in the story. Like he's saying, like, he w- and Paul even affirms in his letters that Luke is with him, that Luke, the beloved physician, is with him. So Paul, in his letters, references Luke. Luke, in writing about Paul, says, we did this, and we did that. Uh, So it's kind of really cool. Now, here's a problem. There's a school of uh, thought which wants to say, well, when when were the Gospels written, right? Let's talk about when the Gospels were written, at least the synoptic Gospels. Um, We're going to get to John and Paul, and we've got about two and a half minutes left. So let's see what happens. Um, The Synoptic Gospels. Well, Jesus predicts in the Synoptic Gospels that the temple would be destroyed. And that happened in the year 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Jesus couldn't have possibly known that that was going to happen. So what happened was, after the year 70, people in writing the Gospels, put those words in Jesus' mouth to make it be like he predicted, as if, like, you know, next year someone writes that Father Casey predicted coronavirus, right? Like, no, either it happened or it didn't happen, right? So you have this whole school of thought that wants to say the Gospels have to be written after 70 AD because Jesus couldn't have possibly predicted the destruction of the temple. But that's baloney. Why? Why? Because if you read Acts of the Apostles, the sequel to Luke's gospel, what doesn't Acts of the Apostles end with? The death of Peter and Paul, right? We know Peter and Paul died in Rome, in the persecutions of Nero, in what is it, 64 AD or 68, it's right in that time, right? We know that they were martyred in Rome, in Nero, under Nero, in the mid-60s. But the Acts of the Apostles says, and he lived there, Paul, for two whole years at his own expense. And welcomed all who came and preached to him. And it ends. Well, I have a book next door called Witness to Hope, which is the biography of St. John Paul II. And that ends with the great jubilee of the year 2000, right? Um, It doesn't say John Paul II died. Why doesn't it say that? Because the book was written in 2000, 2001, and he wasn't dead yet. So if a biography doesn't talk about the death of the person, I'm also reading a biography of Bill Belichick right now, right? And that biography, I'll tell you, doesn't end with the death of Bill Belichick. Why? Because he's still alive. It doesn't even end with the end of his time as a Patriots coach. Why? Because he's still the coach of the Patriots. So what's the most logical explanation? For why the Acts of the Apostles doesn't talk about the death of Peter and Paul? Because they're not dead yet. Which means the Acts of the Apostles has to be written before the mid-60s. Now, what is, working back from there, what do we know has to be written before Acts of the Apostles? The Gospel of Luke. Because it's the sequel. So Luke... Has to come before Acts. Now, is Luke the first thing written even by his own account? No. He says he's reading the other writings, which would account for who? Matthew and Mark. And all of this has to be before the mid-60s. So now, if Jesus is put to death around the year 33... Within 25 years, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts of the Apostles. Not only that, we have the ep- the epistles of Saint Paul that we'll get into in just one second, and that is all within 25 years. Can anybody here remember what happened in 1995? Roughly, can you roughly remember 1990? No, really, no one. Does anyone remember 1990? We had a presidential election in 1993. Who got elected in '93? No, no, what really? You're all killing me. Bill Clinton. Come on, I was, I was what? Um, seven years old. I Bill Clinton got elected, right? I'm sure if we tried really hard, we could remember um, big things, right? Twenty five years is not that long of a time, right? 1995, 25 years ago. It's not that long of a time. Columbine. Columbine. Uh, was that ninety? Was that ninety five? Ninety four. Ninety four. Okay. I mean, look, September eleventh, two 2001. Who doesn't remember that, right? That's 19 years ago. Any of these Gospels could have been written within that amount of time, right? It's not that long ago to talk about what happened. Um, and they had much better memories than we did. Okay, a, few, a final point. Yeah, especially than those of us in this room. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so that's where we get the dating of some of those. Now, we know that Paul is writing letters, and he's writing them as he's traveling with Luke in things that are happening in the Acts of the Apostles. We, the first letter, uh, the first thing written of the New Testament, we believe to be the first letter to the Thessalonians is the oldest of the writings there. Um, but in Paul's, most of Paul's letters are written again within that time before Paul gets to Rome in the mid-60s at the end of the Acts of the Apostles. Just a final point on the um, New Testament is John, the John the Apostle. Now, John could have been as young as uh, 14 or 15 in the year 33, which means that when he was following our Lord, he, he could have been, he was probably pretty young, uh, definitely probably under 18. And so John can live another 60 years, right? So John can live into the 90s, which is what it's believed that John wrote uh, his letters. He wrote the book of Revelation. But then things kind of stayed quiet for a while. But at the end of his life, in the late 80s, early 90s, people knew all the details of the stories from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But that we lost something of the, the incredible magnitude of this person of Jesus. That, you could meet him and say, "Where are you staying?" and he'll say, "Come and see." And you stay with him for the rest of the day. And the next day, are like, "We found the Messiah, right?" And that's John's own vocation story at the beginning of John's Gospel. Or the we're going to read it uh, not this weekend, but next weekend. The the dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well, just the way that Jesus is just slowly talking to this woman and bringing her along, and just the in John's Gospel, so many times the narrative kind of falls to the side. And just becomes like a one-on-one dialogue. And that's what it was like being with Jesus. And so John writes his gospel as probably the last book written in the New Testament as a testimony to this is this person that we knew and that we loved and who loved us. And so John is teaching. It's, he's not trying to get the details out. Other people get the details. You read John's gospel, you're like, You wouldn't think Jesus did all that much, besides a few miracles and a few trips to Jerusalem. He's not trying to get that. What he's teaching is the beauty of the encounter with Jesus Christ. And so that is um, John's Gospel. So these are, that's the New Testament, that's the Bible. The Bible is the soul of all of theology the church teaches. And so um, we... um, we should know the book. We should know the Bible. We should read it as it is, the word of God. And we should allow it to shape and inform all of our lives. Okay, so we went about five minutes over, I'm sorry. And we only got through about 30 points in our catechism. But, um, oh no, 41 if you count the summary. You got through 41, okay. So we're going to start uh, next month on man's response to God, chapter 3 of part 1 of chapter 1 of article 1 of whatever. Um, And so that's number 142. And then we'll talk about faith and the creeds and a little bit about believing in one God. All right, let's conclude with a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.